and welcome to another episode of the Disability History Association podcast. I'm Kelsey Henry. And I'm Caroline Liefers. And today it's our pleasure to speak with Nicholas Herenek, who joins us from the Department of Historical Studies at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. Nick is a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow who specializes in women, gender, and sexuality studies with research interests in disability and crypt studies, queer studies, feminist STS, philosophy, sociology, history, all that good stuff. Nick, we really look forward to chatting with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So I had the pleasure of happening across your work when I was wearing one of my other professional hats as the Editorial Assistant for Disability Studies Quarterly, or DSQ. And I copy edited your article, uh, No Sorrow, No Pity, Intersections of Disability, HIV AIDS, and Gay Male Masculinity in the 1980s for DSQ's forthcoming June 2021 issue. And as soon as I read it, I was like, we have to get Nick on the podcast. Um, one of my favorite questions to ask folks, just to start, um, is when you realized that disability studies was relevant to your work or that you were already doing disability history in one way or another, but maybe you weren't calling it that initially or you didn't realize that's what you were doing initially, uh, was your path to disability studies chosen? Um, did you know that you wanted to go in that direction or did the field sort of find you uh, in an unexpected way? So thank you for that question. That's a, it's a really, um, it's a really good question. And um, it actually was unexpected, my arrival in disability studies. Um, it was a pleasant, surprising arrival. Um, so most recently, I would say it, disability studies began to really show itself in the final chapter of what was my dissertation, but is now a forthcoming book I have. Um, it's under contract right now with University of Toronto Press. And I was interested, of course, with gay male masculinity as I focus on it throughout the book. But the last chapter, um, because I um, end at, in 1987 for various reasons, uh, mainly because the source I'm using as the premise ends in 1987. It was important to, I felt, the last chapter deal with HIV and AIDS. But one of the things that stood out to me the most was the way in which they, uh, discussions around gay masculinity and gay male bodies use the language, particularly those that were debilitated by AIDS, and I say that purposefully, because they use the language of disability. And so I began to unravel this and, and say, it's, this is more than semantics. It's more than simply you know, uh, a, a peculiar word choice, but rather it, um, it resonates for the ways in which we understand bodies and the way that bodies move through time and space. And it made me start questioning, questioning the ableism in other assets, aspects of my work. And um, so it was a really, really organic evolution, I would argue. But then I look back on older uh, research I have done. So I have an article that came out in 2015 on what was called the Peacock Revolution. And this was just sort of a, a brief fashion movement in the late 1960s and early 1970s inspired 
by Hugh Hefner and the bachelor phenomenon of like where they could wear cravats and gold suits and, you know, smoking jackets. And, and you know, think of Austin Powers in some way. Uh, there's a flamboyancy. But I thought this is really interesting because this is a time period. Think about it. It's the late 60s, early 70s. Gay liberation starting to take hold. Uh, gay visibility is growing exponentially as a result. And what we're seeing is straight men acting very flamboyancy, cosmopolitan or metropolitan. And gay men, in fact, are acting in some ways more butch. So I'm like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? They're, they're almost speaking to each other without speaking to each other. And I saw ads that would talk about how the designer for clothing, like, um, you know, it would bring up like Dior or, or someone who, whoever's marketing certain products. And they would bring up the sexuality of the designers saying, you know, they're not just another mad gay designer. Like, and that, that's a, quite a literal uh, quote that was in one of the ads. And, but to reassure men who bought those clothes to say, but you're not going to have your sexuality or masculinity questioned for being interested in fashion. So just because they are, doesn't mean you aren't. And so um, I began to think about where the primacy of the body was in that respect and the way in which bodies are framed and contorted in advertisements and to think about how we understand and we read bodies. So I've always been interested in the body and that's when I began to see these broader questions of uh, ability and the way we also see bodily failure and then that's what led me uh, right to disability studies and then the beautiful thing about disability studies, of course, is that it flips it on its head and it makes me think about bodily failure in almost complete reversed terms and start thinking about ability as something of a failure of consciousness or um, something that is so ubiquitously powerful because it's invisible, right? Which is often what disability studies does is to highlight the, um, to highlight the invisibility, what we don't wanna see. Right. So, um, yeah, so it was a very organic movement, definitely out of my dissertation and my first book, but it's actually coming to shape my second book, which I'm happy to talk about at a, uh, later on. Thank you so much, Nick. And yeah, we'll be asking you about both your first and second book actually shortly. So very much looking forward to that. The article that you shared with us that we'll be talking largely about today provides a textual analysis of the body politic. So can you tell us about why you chose the body politic as your primary text? How did you get into this? Why did it seem like the right place to put your focus? Yes, thank you. So the body politic was published between 1971 and 1987. And it between those years, it was uh, the largest gay and lesbian newspaper in Canada, but it also had a prominent international readership as well, spanning to Western Europe, to South America, and so on. And you see that with a lot of readers writing into the newspaper, talking about various issues, topics at hand. A lot of archival material comes from it as well, so it's quite a rich textual source. There were a lot of images published in the body politic, um, because part of their mantra um, in establishing a newspaper was that visualizing sexuality was part and parcel of sexual liberation, right? So that they needed to visualize the body and visualize same-sex love and desire. So the politicking that was going on in the body politic was quite large. And the editorial collective who had started the body politic 
came out of the We Demand protests of 1971 on Parliament Hill in which, um, of course, uh, early gay uh, liberationists uh, set out a series of demands, if you will, to uh, end the systematic um, oppression of gays and lesbians uh, in the country, particularly because up until 1969, homosexuality was criminalized and it was only in 1969 that it was partially decriminalized in Canada. So I chose the body politic, of course, because of its wide scope and these were not small issues. Uh, I think the first issue was up to about 30 some odd pages and you know, within the next year or two, by at least by the mid seventies, they were like 50 page issues. So like it was more, if anything, in line with a special interest magazine than um, a newspaper, but you know, it just, it had such rich context uh, and content. Um, but I wanna add that it was an English paper and that it would, didn't feature much uh, French content. Um, it would cover issues going on in Montreal um, or, you know, something that might've happened in France, but it was more than anything, uh, uh, an English newspaper. So there is that caveat. But I wanna also just finally say that by looking at the body politic and when I was exploring this relationship, particularly in the context of the article um, around this relationship between HIV and AIDS with disability, that I'm not trying to fill a gap here. Rather, I'm turning my attention to the ways in which Disabilities always existed and been there, just simply unspoken, unrecognized, and unacknowledged. So I don't see myself as highlighting or addressing a gap, but rather reformulating a truth. Yeah, I that's so beautifully put, and I think we'll tie in really nicely with an upcoming question about historiography. Um, I love that. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about uh, the way that you were analytically uh, just working with the body politic, uh, or TBP for short, uh, your analysis covers uh, both the discussions of disability in TBP that predated um, the onset of the HIV AIDS epidemic in the early 80s, and the discussions of disease-induced disability or debilitation that were caused by HIV in subsequent years. And I'm wondering how did that earlier uh, conversation around disability in gay male sexuality make its way into later conversations about frailty and undesirability in response to uh, embodiment and HIV AIDS? Yes, so um, you're right to say that there were earlier conversations around disability pre-HIV AIDS epidemic, um, but they were far and few between. So in 1980, um, Ger Gerald Hannon of The Body Politic comes out with this article called No Sorrow, No Pity, which is now eponymously the name of my article. Um, and in it, speaks about the marginalization of people with disabilities in the gay and lesbian community, particularly in Toronto. And Hannon has uh, a wide set of conclusions about what has contributed to the systematic uh, marginalization or you know, invisibility, if you will, 
of persons with a disability. But what I appreciated was that he also interviewed those with a disability to ask them about their experiences. So I remember there was an individual by the name of Richard and Richard actually spoke about what it was like to navigate um, the queer community as somebody who was blind. Interestingly enough though, Richard also published a classified ad in the following months in the, uh, the back of the body politic and the classified section was a place where men could meet other men um, or and women as well, but it was obviously like a lot of gay liberation unfortunately at the time was extremely male centric. Um, so it was like grinder of the 1980s and 70s, uh, right? So this is how they were meeting each other. And, um, but one of the things that Richard had said, and I thought this was fascinating, explained himself and said, you can actually see a profile of myself in earlier issues and uh, defined himself, but then also said, please send a photo if possible. And um, also gave a description of what he was looking for. And I thought it was very interesting that Richard as a self-described blind man was also asking us for a photo to then whether that was to have it like legibly described to him or he himself, you know, based on disability is a spectrum that he himself could still utilize that photo in uh, imagining his ideal partner or if this person was a match, I thought was extremely interesting and shows the way in which they um, navigated the queer community in their own ways. So um, it was really important to understand how these discussions laid the foundation for then what would become discussions around uh, disability that and that were all disabled. So Hannon gives this article, No Sorrow, uh, No Pity. And in the latter part, he makes us reconceptualize disability and able-bodiedness. And this is mind-blowing from the 1980s because, um, because he's thinking about disability as something that um, we all oscillate in and out of. So he speaks about when you're a baby and you rely on your parents for everything, to be fed, to be clean, to be warm, and says that as a, um, you know, a, a tiny, tiny little human being, you rely, um, you need that support because you are essentially unable to care for yourself. And then also speaks about the fact that when you get to a certain point in age, you, when you're so old, you may need that similar type of care. And so what he says is that we're all disabled at one point or another, and we need to all think about disability in that way. And so I was like, this is really interesting. Also very thought provoking for the 1980s to be thinking about um, ability and able-bodiedness in this way. Um, so these kind of conversations were about highlighting disability. They were talking about um, processes, or I should say practices of uh, discrimination that were faced uh, that were facing people with disabilities. Uh, there was an article that was published a couple issues after called Stair Trek, and in it they spoke about how almost all gay bars in Toronto had stairs to get into, whether they were above a shop or below in a basement. And as a result, that was a physical barrier that inhibited certain people from coming to these venues, right? Particularly people with physical disabilities. But what was more heartbreaking, but also interesting to see was the way in which um, people with cognitive disabilities were ridiculed and mocked out of these spaces. So um, one of the gentlemen, um, I'm, unfortunately I can't remember their name, but they were um, 
They were also interviewed in Hannon's article. And one of the gentlemen spoke about how, as a person with cerebral palsy, they went to one of the bars and somebody actually said, like, do you expect to pick up here? Like, what are you doing here? And so there was a policing of space. And like, I think it's extremely important to remind ourselves that one of the reasons why people with disabilities were marginalized or made to be invisible in the queer community was not simply because of formal institutions like institutionalization and, and, and practices, but informal practices like bullying and hazing and, and so on. So these conversations are happening before HIV AIDS. And another thing that's going on as well is we're beginning to see the formative years of disability activism in the queer community. So in 1977, Raymond Barton, um, who was about 27 at the time, goes to San Francisco and finds something completely revolutionary, which was um, those who were uh, deaf, queer deaf people, meeting other queer deaf people and establishing some sort of community that existed well beyond the bars, which were of course a huge meeting place for uh, many liberationists and gays and lesbians in the 1970s and 80s. So he brings that back to Toronto with him on his adventure to San Francisco, and he forms the York Rainbow Society of the Deaf. And they go to the Parkside Tavern, which is a, a bar in Toronto, and they sign, and this is actually documented by Hannon. And he talks about how there is a deaf, a, a gay, a, a queer, gay, deaf, whatever they want to describe themselves as, because the change, the terms always change, but they were a gay, deaf group who, um, you know, co-opted or, you know, forced themselves to be in spaces that were never acknowledged to have catered to them. You know, the Parkside Tavern is often remembered as a space of gay male camaraderie and cruising and all that, but it's never remembered as a space which also housed the York Rainbow Society of the Deaf, that they were there signing and, you know, engaging in disability activism. So, I think that's extremely important. Um, so these earlier efforts to at least even bring disability into the minds of readers of the body politic, of course, then shape later conversations around HIV AIDS. So these earlier um, questions about what it meant to be disabled, what it meant to be desirable and have a disability. And we also see that with other readers like Warren Camp of Mississauga, who writes in and speaks about um, uh, having two prosthetic legs but not in need of a wheelchair and spoke about how that made his coming out easier by going to the bars, he could still go to the bars. So what we realized then is participation was a fundamental um, aspect in, in, in sort of helping uh, gays and lesbians with disabilities, you know, come to that sexual awakening or sexual realization. They, were able, they had to be able to participate, if you will, in this burgeoning, uh, culture. And one of the ways they did that, of course, was whether it was co-opting spaces or finding themselves in certain places, um, was by, you know, grassroots activism. And this would shape similar processes around HIV AIDS in the um, subsequent years. So by 81, we begin to see, the, of course, the first signs of AIDS rear its head. Um, you know, I believe it was the San Francisco newspaper that talked about uh, 
five gay men or is a number of gay men were showing up with Kaposi's sarcoma, which is a rare type of melanoma. And of course we know that is uh, indicative of late stage AIDS. And the conversations of course that take place by the time HIV AIDS is known, um, it's not just mythologized. Some people believed in 81 that it was uh, a remnant or it's a, um, it was a result of the right wing uh, sort of Christian majority saying, uh, you know, this is just a way of demonizing homosexuality. But um, it fundamentally changes what it means to be able-bodied. And uh, it brings sexual practices into question. It brings the concept and questions of desire into focus. Something that has been, of course, been wrestled with now for years within the disability, the, the gay disability community, as we saw with Raymond Barton and, and others. But um, it's now all of a sudden, it's on the agenda of everybody rather than just a small segment, right? So AIDS expands the scope, I should say, of disability activism in a way. I'd love to hear you reflect a little bit more about how exactly the, the aesthetics of disability or the language, like representation around disability was constructed as somehow antithetical to gay male masculinity in TBP. Um, and I have so many other thoughts here about how like disability is often associated with um, asexuality or like a desexualization. But what's so curious about HIV induced debilitation is that that's connected to hypersexuality um, or perceptions of hypersexuality and promiscuity. So yeah. there's a lot going on there. Um, and I'm wondering like more specifically how were disease and disability considered to be at odds with queer embodiment? So stylization, wow, I can't say this word today. <laughs> Stylizations of the body um, as virile, healthy, hypermasculine. And then the second part of that question, I know you mentioned you were talking about the criminalization of homosexuality but homosexuality has also been medicalized um, as a disease category or a mental illness. And I'm wondering what role uh, the medicalization of homosexuality played in shaping hostility towards disease and disability in gay male communi communities. So two questions there. Um, yes. about, yeah, disease and disability at odds with queer stylizations of the body and what does this have to do with the pathologization of homosexuality? Yes, and, and thank you. So um, first and foremost, when it comes to the stylization of the body, we should understand that gay male masculinity um, and masculinities, I mean, because it is a spectrum and there were various types of performances, but over the course of the 1970s, and as we see a gay male culture formulate out of early gay liberationist activities. And the body politic, I would argue, became just as much a cultural periodical as it did an engine of political activism. What we see is gay male masculinity begin to take shape, aesthetic shape, along able-bodied white muscular lines. And this is actually what constituted um, what they called the macho clone. And they said they called them the clone because they were so ubiquitous. Everybody had six packs and like mustaches and wore tank tops that they were just like, oh, they all look alike, right? Like you would mistake people because they'd be like, oh, I thought you were so-and-so. And they're all just clones. And so gay male masculinity is being imagined 
along these lines. And this is should come as no shock because it still is imagined along muscular white able-bodied lines. And now you can argue that many didn't embody macho, but macho was presented in bathhouse advertisements, bar advertisements, even by some members of the body politic as the image of masculinity, as well as the image of gay liberation. Like this is what it means to be gay, is to be beautiful. And you see that because those same images are evocative uh, um, of pride in the contemporary period, right? That when we think about pride and you think of like absolute vodka or anybody else who wants to sell stuff during pride, they typically present a very specific image of gay masculinity. And it is one that embodies these tropes of desirability. So this is not new. That's what that's sort of what inspired me at first to write about gay male masculinity to say, you know, kids, this isn't new. Pride, the politics of desire and able-bodiedness that pride is not new. This is something we've been wrestling with since gay liberation, but even well before it. I mean, all gay liberation did was basically say porn, gay porn of the 1920s well through to the 1960s is a part of gay male heritage, gay male culture, right? And there are a few scholars who've tried to do that. So you have this particular aesthetic of gay male masculinity being uh, presented as like the epitome of desire. And this of course stands inherently at odds with the disabled or diseased body. Um, one of the ways it does is that as you mentioned in your question, it ex exemplify or exudes understandings of the body as virile and healthy, particularly the male body. And these were all correlated with hypermasculinity. And I say it's hypermasculine because I think about Susan Sontag's questions on camp and it's just so over the top, like you know they're making fun of it, right? And that's what camp is, like when you're in on the joke, you get it, you realize the artifice that everything is. And then you realize like, oh, but I can poke fun at it. My issue is, and this is where I sort of, I dance between being post-structuralist on one hand and sort of saying there's no self and everything's an artifice and social construction, but then saying in some ways, I think of like Irving Goffman and dramaturgy and sign vehicles in which saying, but these were also ways in which people began to identify with the community around them. And by saying like, I wanna participate in clone culture or I wanna look like that, or I don't look like that. So I feel like I'm failing. Like this is a politics around the body that come out of having a very narrow image of gay masculinity being presented. So those with a disability, of course, are not gonna see themselves represented. And there was this particularly provocative image I saw, um, and I wanna say it was in the body politic, please don't hold me to it though, but it was in during my archival findings. And it, it was in it. And it was an image of a wheelchair and no one in it. And I thought nothing could exude the invisibility faced by people with disabilities more than that image of saying, you know, they see the wheelchair, but they don't see the person in it. They don't see the sexuality of the person, the desirability of the person in it. They simply see disability. And I think that evoked to me, you know, the politics of able-bodiedness and disability in an ableist society in which we don't see people for who they are. We see them for what their bodies can perform and how their bodies perform and, you know, the legibility of their masculinity in this context. So healthy, virile, you know, hyper-masculine, all the, all desirable characteristics of the macho clone. But then HIV AIDS happens. 
And what that does is it threatens to strip that male body from its virility, of its healthiness, and therefore relegate it to the periphery as bodies that were perceived as disabled had been. And so I think this speaks in some ways to the second question, because the pathologization, as you rightly put, of homosexuality has been inextricably linked. And this has been since the late 19th and early 20th century. Some might even say before that. But when with the rise of sexologists and you have uh, like Sigmund Freud, you have Magnus Hirschfeld and others who are writing about sexuality, you know, um, of course they had much more uh, <laughs> rudimentary terms for homosexuality. But what that did was it didn't, just as much as it classified a group of people who shared same-sex desires, it also meant straight people had an awakening and being like, oh, I know what I am because therefore I know what I'm not. Because like straight people weren't going around in the 18th, 17th century to be like, yeah, I'm a heterosexual. They didn't know what they were. They were just like, oh, I know I'm not engaging in that. So therefore I must be heterosexual by the time that we begin to see this medicalized shift. We also know that disability has been pathologized to the high heavens. And I mean, part of when we're engaging crip theory and we're looking at disability studies, it's to break free of that pathology uh, and that pathologization, the, the pathologizing language, if you will. And that's something I was very, um, I thought about deeply when I was talking about those collisions between disability and disease, because I didn't want to repathologize disability. What did I wanted to say was that diseased body, the HIV AIDS afflicted body was pathologized using the language of disability. It, you know, within the same community that attacked the medical profession for pathologizing homosexuality. So it was interesting to see the ways in which pathologization doesn't just happen from the medical field and from those with PhDs and fancy titles, but also happens from the ground up within the community itself. And of course, this undoubtedly shaped understandings of disability as well as desirability. And I think of um, Robert McCrewer's concept uh, of stigmaphobic distancing, in which members of a community will distance themselves from others in order to be seen as more normal or more desirable. And in this case, what we see is um, those with unaffected by HIV AIDS um, or even those with it distance themselves from disability um, or dis you know those without the disease distance themselves with from HIV AIDS because they wanted to be seen as not just healthy and virile or masculine or normal but as a way of saying that they could be accepted or tolerated in mainstream society um, just as queer folks had done with persons with disabilities throughout the 70s and I don't want to generalize by the way and say that everybody did it but there's um, a cultural process that's going on, a, a broader shift to how we appreciate and um, bodies we don't appreciate, right? As Butler, Judith Butler would say, bodies that matter. Well, what bodies don't matter? That's really interesting. There's so much there to unpack about the power of apologization as a way of sort of regaining control over a crisis, right? A really scary situation that's striking at the heart of newly won freedoms for the gay community in this period, right? Let's talk a little bit more about some of the specific debates that you see showing up in the pages of the body politic about these representations of disability and disease that reinforce the quote undesirability of the AIDS body 
while simultaneously addressing stigmas of the disease. Can you give us some more detail there? Absolutely. So some of the earlier debates and questions around um, disability per se were first and foremost uh, brought forth by persons with disabilities, by gay men or women with disabilities saying, I'm here, I'm in the community. You need to recognize me. You, you need to um, realize that I am just as much a member of this community as you are. So it was a lot of um, activist work. Um, you know, um, what the big word is now, uh, a form of collective care, if you will. And um, of course, this fundamentally changes with HIV AIDS, but we see this correlation, this collision of this language in recounts of the ravaging effects the disease has on particularly gay men. So Gerald Hannon, the same individual editorial member who wrote No Sorrow, No Pity, talking about um, disability, also spoke about a time in which he went to New York City to visit his um, friend, Fred. Um, and it was his visit with Fred, who I believe was a pseudonym for a man named Larry, but that aside, it was his visit with Fred in which he began to see the ravaging effects of HIV AIDS. So what he noticed was, um, Fred was struggling with Kaposi sarcoma. He was he had cancer and he was going through chemo and whatnot. And he actually spoke about when Fred lost um, his mustache, he lost a great sense of pride. So he actually spoke about how Fred identified through his mustache, which I thought was interesting that facial hair became a signifier of masculinity. But um, when he came back after, he made a couple trips, but I think it was the second or third trip that he spoke about um, Fred looking rather gaunt and almost like a husk, right? Like debilitated and frail and just his body was failing and he looked weak. But it was that experience too in which he noted like friends, Fred, uh, Fred's friends stopped coming around. They wouldn't come to visit. And, you know, they, they, some people were scared of contracting the disease by just simply you know, going into someone's apartment who had HIV AIDS. I mean, there were still a lot of questions about transmission. So we see the collision, particularly in the ways in which people with HIV AIDS are described. Um, Brian uh, Texi, I wanna say Texier, I, I, I might be butchering the last name, but um, one writer for the body politics spoke about people with AIDS as lepers to be denied. He described them as lepers. And I thought this was extremely interesting because in many ways, those were almost the exact same words that um, a few people with disabilities writing in even just a year prior had described themselves. They're like, I feel like a leper in my own community that I'm pushed aside. So I thought this is really interesting that the same type of language is being used. Um, and when it is used, it's almost exclusively to talk about disease and talk about oppression, but we never talk about um, they, they never really gave room for people with disabilities to speak about the opportunities their disability that they still had despite disabilities or, you know, the way in which we need to re-envision the world around them. I mean, you have Hannon writing in 1980, but it was still an able-bodied publication, one centered on able-bodied gay male culture. So I think you're seeing those instances of collision really happened when 
and HIV AIDS bodies described, or there's a film review, for example, the film Buddies that came out. And I wanna say it was 1984 or five, forgive me for the specific date, but when it came out, you see, there was a film still that was published in the body politic from the, from the movie. And it's just this sullen looking white man with um, what is clearly a um, spot of Caprice sarcoma on his face, a, a lesion. And he's looking sullenly into the camera and there's someone sort of blurred a little bit like out of focus behind him sitting there. And the immediate reaction you get when you see that image is he's alone, he's isolated, he's depressed, there's trauma. And these are all types of ways in which they aestheticize the AIDS affected bo afflicted body. This was also done in mainstream periodicals as well, like Time Magazine when Rock Hudson came out and that was news to the world. Rock Hudson disclosed his HIV status and they showed um, contrasting images. And there was one image of a healthy young heterosexual in quotes, uh, Rock Hudson, who was virile and square jawed and the epitome of red blooded American masculinity. And then there was the homosexual Rock Hudson, who was frail, weak, debilitated, gaunt, uh, you know, everything you can imagine. And it was said like homosexual Rock Hudson. And it's like, has AIDS. Like, you know what I mean? The idea is like, okay, so what happens when you lose that sanitized image of straight masculinity? You have gay masculinity, which is of course, disease or debilitated. So I see a lot of instances in which particularly with the AIDS crisis unfolding, gay men distancing themselves from those with it in order to secure their own desirability and their own sexuality in a way. And uh, it's one of the reasons why you all see a lot of bodybuilding and gym culture take off because there was this idea that if I could have muscles and I have a healthy looking body, then no one would mistake me for having AIDS because I don't look gaunt, I don't look like that. So there was a politics of aesthetics wrapped up in this whole, um, larger concern around sexuality and desirability. I I don't know if this is so much a question, it's more just a comment. What you were saying was really making me think about the ways that the HIV AIDS afflicted body became kind of a, a stigmata at, of homosexuality. And yes. I'm, I'm thinking about kind of the, the far right, like conservative responses to HIV AIDS as the wrath of God um, and kind of the epidermalization of gay sin. Uh, so there was, it's interesting to think about the, the interplay there between kind of how the conservative media was interpreting the HIV AIDS afflicted body as evidence of internal behavioral pathology in homosexuality and, and the, the response, uh, like the countercultural response within gay male communities in terms of bodybuilding, how just culturally freighted or loaded that was, um, like the need to disavow the HIV AIDS afflicted body because of the way that it was being stylized as like proof of gay pathology, like needing to construct a better, healthier, like reformed image. Absolutely. And I couldn't, I couldn't have said it better myself. And I think what we see, so it, it's a combination of forces with bodybuilding per se, but 
Absolutely, it takes on new meaning away from self-defense or desirability strictly. And it is a way in which, again, to draw McCrura's stigmaphobic distancing back in again, a way in which those who at least appeared or identified as healthy and didn't think anything was wrong with their bodies, a way for them to feel like they could still participate in this gay male culture. And it does also speak to larger concerns going on around the wrath of the far right and this idea that, you know, this was divinely ordained, that this was a God-given punishment. Uh, you have the far Christian majority with like Anita Bryant and um, the moral majority, if you will, who spoke out against homosexuality. And that's why I think there was such hesitancy at first to believe that AIDS was even a thing, because they thought this was a lot of, you know, myth-making and, and scare tactics, fear-mongering among those, that Christian sect who believed homosexuality to be a sin. And this was very much a response to the Christian, right? But they also felt that Christianity and sort of this moral conservatism was a bedfellow to medicalization. And so they felt that there was this innocent, many were so when I'm seeing these early discussion on HIV and AIDS, I'm seeing not just a, a critique or concern that this might be the work of the right wing of, of con social conservatives, but that this was also the work of pathologists who have long felt that homosexuality, like if we could just find that gay gene, if we can just find out what makes you tink, tick, uh, that this was the work of a medicalized industry that has long sought to regulate gay bodies, uh, bodies beyond the normal. And I think that's where we also see another form of overlapping with those with a disability because disabled bodies have been pathologized to the high heavens. And again, if they weren't being um, medically scrutinized, they were being regulated. And by regulate, I mean putting in institutions, sequestered from the rest of society, right? Because that they should not, you look at Susan Schweck's ugly laws. There was an aesthetic. Some people could be so ugly, quote unquote, they could not be fit for public life. And they were actually told like stay in your home or go into an institution because they had deformities or disabilities that were just seen as quote unquote obscene. And we like, you know, and we would never allow that to happen in this day and age. But in some ways, the HIV AIDS body was treated the same way. Like it was so grotesque in a way that it had to die alone in an apartment, you know, away from loved ones or family because people were scared of contracting it. And that's not to generalize, say all bodies. And I also don't want to um, perpetuate the idea that gay men were somehow uncaring or supportive because there was a lot of love. There was a lot of love and there was a lot of trauma, but I think you would be remiss to not acknowledge, as you said, that there were reverberations with working out with the gay male body as a site, as a response to questions about bodily failure. I'm really curious about this because I'm recalling that book, I think it's from about 1983, it's called How to Have Sex in an Epidemic. And it's a book about safe sex, right? But I'm wondering about the safe sex discourse and how that came to be part of this, if at all. 
was this a way of sort of preserving the, the capacity of the diseased body to be sexual? Is this about trying to, I don't know, walk that fine line, right, between suggesting that there is risk, but it is manageable? I mean, I would really love to hear your thoughts on safe sex, which in many cases actually emerged from within the gay community, right, how that played into this conversation. Yes, thank you. So, um, well, you're absolutely right to say that it emerged in the gay community in response to the AIDS epidemic. I mean, before, of course, you had bathhouses and bars galore and bathhouse culture and promiscuity, I don't want to say was for everybody, but promiscuity was definitely a, um, a, a common practice in or a common uh, behavior um, or idea. Um, in the gay male community as a response to what they saw as heteronormative monogamy. They saw it as a way of a big FU, if you will, to straight society's moral restrictions. And this also bled into things like they were anti-marriage, which funny enough with AIDS also affects gay marriage in, in, in a way, and I'll get to that in a second. But so AIDS completely flips us on its head. And you begin to see a lot of vocal proponents within the gay liberation movement um, and queer activism of the 1980s say like, okay, safe sex is needed because we're starting to understand that, you know, AIDS can be, HIV can be transmitted through um, sexual intercourse. There are certain behaviors that are more risky than others. And in one, at one point, I think it was 1984, the AIDS Act, which is the AIDS Committee of Toronto, uh, they published an ad in which showed a very white muscular body, headless, um, and it said one in four may have been exposed to the HIV AIDS virus. Um, I think they just called it the AIDS virus at the time, but um, this idea was that that was the body that was having all of the sex. Therefore, that was the body that was at risk. And this subsequently, and it's not a way of demonizing any efforts, but what this did was it also imagined AIDS as a white man's disease ignoring the ravaging effects that AIDS has had on racialized communities. Essex Hemphill and a few other um, artists and authors have described um, this lack of acknowledgement of the disease's effects on particularly black communities, um, which have been disproportionately affected by HIV AIDS. And it actually says that this is actually a legacy of slavery in which black suffering is considered quote unquote unremarkable. So it's, we've just become accustomed to black suffering. So therefore, what's the point of talking about it um, with HIV and AIDS? And so in Toronto, so you have these efforts to visualize the AIDS body. And it, as you said, it walks this fine line between encouraging people to be able to still engage with practices and behaviors that had long been standard in gay male sexuality, which was like cruising or going to the bathhouses, at the same time addressing a very real epidemic that was costing lives. And for many, they didn't necessarily wanna give up their sexual practices. And so safe sex was, a, was a, I think the best compromise they could think of was through condom use. But I think it was about 83, 84 when everybody really started taking it seriously and saying, okay, something needs to change. And interesting enough, out of that, we begin to see this huge push from monogamy within some se segments of the uh, gay male community, which of course, and then in turn, in addition to things like pension benefits and other employment re relationship recognition, if you will, 
leads to gay marriage, which was antithetical to the earliest principles of gay liberation. So in some ways, AIDS actually, and it's pushed for monogamy, encourages this movement for gay marriage because to say like, you know, we're just like everybody else, right? And there's a certain homo-nationalism wrapped up in that. So, you know, I think, yeah, AIDS completely changes the conversation. And to go around just quickly back to disability, I think it does spark some benefits. It makes a lot more people sympathetic to the rights and needs of people with disabilities, right? Because as people become debilitated by HIV or AIDS, or they, they begin to feel similar processes of isolation or ostracism, they sympathize, right? And it's sad that it takes something like that for someone to then feel empathetic towards another group. At the same time, it also fosters a type of apprehension around the body in which you want to further separate yourself from the disabled body by saying like, yeah, okay, but this is, or the, even the HIV AIDS body, afflicted body, because to say like, look at then again, that goes back to the questions around and discussions around bodybuilding, right? What meaning does the muscular body now have? Well, it says to a lot of people, wow, they're healthy looking. So they must be a great source for sex. And, and just to um, elaborate just for a second, I think that, um, they promoted safe sex to prevent transmission, not to reclaim sexuality for those who had already been affected. And I think that's fundamentally different because those who had HIV AIDS had a very small platform. They would describe the oppressions they faced or the experiences of the stigmatization of the, their Kaposi sarcoma or if they get odd looks or being isolated in a hospital ward, right? Treated with hazmat suits. They would describe those horrifying instances but they were used as, I think in some ways, it was almost an illustrative facet of the, the ravaging effects of the disease, rather than giving them a place to say like, I'm still a source of desirability. Like I can still make a great partner. I can still, you know, those were not the kind of conversations they were having. The kind of conversations they were having is let's stop the spread. Let's make sure more people don't get it. And safe sex was one of the big reasons. So I, I don't wanna make it sound like, um, people with HIV AIDS were given a platform in which they could say like, I can still have sex because I think for them, it almost might've, it might've almost counter yeah. argued against safe sex, right? Then to say like, okay, so, you know, but it's messy. And as someone who also was not alive at the time, I am doing my best to sort through the archival material as sensitively as possible, because unfortunately a lot of people who were are not with us anymore. Um, and so we have to take that into consideration as well. That's super important. Thank you so much, Nick. And it reminds me of that scene from And the Band Played On where they're talking about Gitanjuga and there's that, um, it's meant to seem grotesque, this idea of Gitanjuga like having sex and then something about him looking down and seeing his Kaposi's sarcoma on his body and then saying something to the effect of maybe you'll have this too. Exactly. And I only say that as well because I had done interviews with um, community members at the time and uh, one of which who uh, helped work with Black Cap, which is the Black Coalition against AIDS for AIDS prevention, I'm sorry, um, in Toronto spoke about uh, a racial discomfort, if you will, among some about uh, African Canadians coming in with, a with HIV diagnoses. And there's a sort of like, oh, we just didn't expect to see you here. And it's like, okay, so then that's why Black Cap formed, right? I mean, not to say that people were racist at ACT, um, or any other AIDS, but there were certain needs that obviously needed to be met 
within our racialized communities around the disease, right? And, and so, as I'd mentioned before, they were not being discussed. AIDS was still being imagined as a white man's disease, right? Because white men were having all the sex apparently, quote unquote. So therefore they were the ones at highest risk. Thank you so much for that. I want to um, pivot back to your article a little bit and talk more about a distinction that you make but acknowledge that is complicated. And that is between disability and disease. And I'm curious about whether that distinction was important for your historical actors in the 1980s and if it was important for you analytically. Can you talk us through some of that? Absolutely. So again, I wanted to make sure I did not re-pathologize disability. And I also did not want to re-medicalize um, in many ways the gay male body. What did I wanted to show, of course, was that the language of disability was used to describe the effects of the disease, but also that we're now seeing as a result of the disease, a politicking of bodies that matter and bodies that no longer mattered, if you will. Um, because, well, they didn't matter in terms of sex. They mattered uh, in other ways, but they didn't matter in terms of sex. And for some, AIDS may have been what made a body fail or no longer sexually viable. So this relegated them in some cases to an invisible periphery. And I'm thinking of you know, the numerous instances which are described around being alone or isolated in an apartment or in hospice or in the, hotel, the hospital room, if you will, the ward. And this is similar to the formal institutionalization which relegated those with disabilities out of, out of sight. And so again, I'm, I think about Susan Schweck's work on ugly laws, but it was important for me to understand the way in which this moment was a time in which the gay male body became a site of collision between these two seemingly different forces. Because by looking at them as two distinct experiences between those who suffer from disease and those who, whether they have it acquired or they were born with a disability, that there is a similar process of, again, stigmaphobic distancing. There's a, a similar reaction, a stim similar stigmatization. And it is that similarity that I thought needed to be addressed because it, has not been discussed in the literature as of yet really around discourses or on um, or around HIV AIDS, particularly within um, the gay and lesbian community. Thank you so much for that answer, Nick. I, my wheels are still turning um, from <laughs> so many things that you've said. And I, one thing that I was thinking about that's so curious when you were talking about the ways that uh, the body that was seen as most at risk was this white, highly desired body, um, like in the ways that HIV AIDS was constructed as a problem for white men. And that made me think about HIV AIDS in a way that I haven't before, which was as a disease, ironically, of desirability, like the way that it was affixed to whiteness, the way that it was effaced in communities of color. Um, and we know that that didn't really correspond to, to reality in terms of which communities were the hardest hit, but it really goes to show just the power of representation. Yes. 
Um, just absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, and, and I'll just say that there was, and I, I wish I could remember the name off the top of my head, but there was a young man from Atlanta, Georgia, who wrote into the body politic. And again, this speaks to the wide scope of the paper, but he writes in and as a black man and says, and I think he was a PhD student, no word of a lie. And he says, like, this is, excuse my French, bullshit. What is going on? Black people are experience HIV at such a higher rate. Why are we not having these conversations? And he's writing this in like 1985 or so. And it's a letter to the editors. It's like published in the second or third page of that issue of the body politic. And, you know, so we see some pushback, but we never, as you said, we don't see that representation. And I use the body politic again because it was such a large source. I thought this was a great place to see if there's going to be representation, it's going to be here. And there wasn't, there were, I mean, people were still, there was a gentleman uh, in 1981 by the name of John York who called himself the only clone on Howard Street. He was like, I'm a black man and I'm the only clone on Howard Street because he identified with macho clone culture. But what did I, you know, macho clone was predominantly white. It was seen as like a, almost a ubiquitously white phenomenon. And so he lamented that. And so for now, all of a sudden to say, he's fighting to just even be recognized as a clone. What are those who have HIV AIDS, which are already getting kind of swept to the side because you have the rest of the community who's like, again, we wanna be seen by normal, by mainstream society. I mean, we live in a society which has policed and regulated us. You know, there's a, as my uh, formal doctoral advisor had written a book called The Canadian War on Queers. You know, there are state campaigns against homosexuals. There are the medical professions after homosexuality. You know, there are all these forces facing against the homos, uh, you know, gay and lesbians at the time. So the last thing gays want to do is say, oh yeah, by the way, we're also harbingers of disease. I highly, <laughs> I don't think they do. So, you know, um, it's already a sensitive topic. And then to add the racial dimensions to it, I think, yeah. And, and you can't expect them to do, you know, you can't go back and, and look at it from like the sort of condescension of posterity. But um, I think it's important to recognize as you so eloquently said, it, it was all about representation, the politics of who is seen and who isn't. Right, right. And I think when, you were, when we're considering those politics of representation and race here, it also goes back to a reference that you gave us earlier about like Judith Butler, Bodies That Matter, um, another, I mean, another Butler reference thinking about what makes a grievable body <laughs> and what, what makes yep. a grievable life. Uh, go, it goes along with how we constitute or understand bodies that matter. There's that correspondence with grievability and what kind of suffering is intelligible. Um, which bodies do we care enough about to even position them as being at risk? Um, yeah. Yes. So much there. Um, I, I want to circle back around to something that you said earlier um, that I thought was so beautif beautiful about your approach um, methodologically or like historiographically mm. in this article um, where you said that you don't feel like you're addressing a gap as much as you are reformulating a truth. And I think this ties in really beautifully um, with something that I've been thinking about historiography, just the historiography of HIV AIDS and the ways that it has yet to adopt um, writ large, like a disability studies framework as a critical lens. 
um, in the ways that you are thinking about the interanimation of disease and disability, like a language of disability during the AIDS epidemic. Um, but of course, disability was always there. Like I'm thinking about like Doug Baton, I'm gonna paraphrase it, but this idea that like disability is everywhere in history, you just have to know how to look and where to look. Um, so I'm wondering like, what do we have to gain from framing this history through a lens of disability studies or through a lens of disability history? Well, I mean, first and foremost, of course, we have, we have the opportunity to learn that again, people with disabilities, gays and lesbians with disabilities were there all along, right? I mean, that's first and foremost, that they were just as much a part of the gay and lesbian community of the 1970s as were cisgendered gay men and women. And I mean, we've done this with Stonewall. We've talked about people like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, and we're re rewriting history in that respect, but we haven't done the same with disability studies, uh, with persons with disabilities and particularly in HIV AIDS narratives. But I think one of the beautiful things about disability studies is it also gives us an opportunity to learn more about the feelings of isolation, loneliness, and the critical relationship many victims of AIDS had with their body. And I think the concern for bodies, anger at bodies for failing, shame or guilt around bodies that might not perform these legible or these desirable um, performances of gender or sexuality, they evoke certain emotions. And I think that helps us work through them and locate those emotions. So I think of Anne Svekovich's An Archive of Feelings and the way in which we can understand emotion after it has been experienced. And Matt Cook has actually done this. And I believe it was in 2017, explored this in the, archi in, uh, the Archive of Feelings, an article with the AIDS crisis in Britain. And it's brilliant because it gives us an idea of how we begin to push an analysis of um, that trauma, that those emotions, those experiences around HIV AIDS in a way that decenters ableism, that it shows, it gives us the tools to unpack HIV AIDS as simply an epidemic, which I think by looking at strictly in terms of disease, in some ways we pathologize the narrative. It places it almost exclusively within the realm of medicine. And yes, we can talk about the cultural reverberations we have had with the disease. And there has been plenty of narratives on us, plenty within the historiography. But what has yet to be explored is the way in which this impacted conversations around disability. And, uh, or even marriage, as I mentioned before, that. I would make the argument that AIDS fundamentally changed the meaning of what gay marriage um, could possibly be for the queer community in a community that had long been almost, I would say, opposed to the idea or you know, systematically opposed to regulated monogamy. Like if it works for you, it works for you, but don't tell me it has to work for me. And I think that reformulates as well, but it provides us with a new comprehensive set of tools to approach HIV AIDS as something that does more than affects the body, it affects cultural representations of bodies and how we come to prize and desire certain bodies, right? I think I always see this as a breadcrumb of trails to how do we get to now? How do we get to a day and age in which still all the bars and you know 
prides and all these festivals, they promote a particular image of gay men, one that has not changed <laughs> very much. I mean, I show this when I'm teaching this, I show an image of a 1973 periodical, the cover, it was called After Dark. And then I show the 2019 issue of, I believe it was Attitude or Out, one of them. And it was, you know, a gay male porn star. And it's like his gym regiment. And I'm like, oh, who cares? But you see this and you're like, and everybody's like, I was like, what's changed? People are like, uh, nothing. And I'm like, very good. 40 years, nothing's changed. Like, you know, we're still talking about the same queens, you know, and it's just, it's so unfortunate. And, you know, just as I think some people tiptoe around HIV AIDS, because there's this hesitancy to talk about it sometimes because they go, oh, do we have to talk about AIDS if we're talking about queer people? Like, why do we always have to talk about AIDS, especially gay men? And I'm thinking, well, A, because it was a, paid a pivotal role in formulating gay consciousness and gay consciousness raising. But again, if we reapproach it from new lenses like disability studies and, and sort of a crip lens and a queer, we can also unpack that trauma. And that sort of leads me also to my, my next project in which I'm looking at queer trauma um, and the anticipation of violence. So that's a perfect bridge actually into our next question. Thank you so much, Nick. I wanna ask you, we wanna ask you about both of your books. So we understand that you currently have a book manuscript under contract with U of T Press, University of Toronto Press, and that's uh, Politicking the Body, the Aesthetics of Masculinity During Gay Liberation, 1971 to 1987. And then you also have just alluded to another book that it seems that you're formulating. So uh, can you talk us just in brief through these projects? And I think we'd also really like to know how this particular essay that we read that's gonna be in DSQ fits into this upcoming book. Yes, thank you. So um, my, book under contract with the University of Toronto Press, tentatively titled Politicking the Body, um, of course is based on my doctoral dissertation, but has since been um, reformulated. And as I've continued to enmesh myself in disability studies has been repacked and reshaped um, as all good books eventually become. It, it, it ends up being almost unrecognizable from its dissertation, but this book um, in of itself looks at the body politic and um, explores the integral links between the presentation and aesthetics of gay male masculinity and the visible politics of gay liberation. And what I argue essentially is that gay liberationists played a fundamental role, and in this case, the body politic played a fundamental role in mediating notions of gay male masculinity, what it meant to be a gay man, how one could look like a gay man, what was a desirable performance of masculinity. And this was wrapped up in the politics and the benefits of a sexual liberation. And so we see images and representations and discussions of masculinity, um, particularly the white macho clone body, the um, perpetuation of racialized notions of masculinity, particularly the idea of like Asian docility or black, hy black hypersexuality. Um, and we also see, of course, then the overlapping narratives of disease and disability in uh, discussions of AIDS and how that affects gay men. And at the end of the day, I just, I thought it was interesting that if visibility was such an important integral component for gay liberation, then what did this 
what do these forms of representation mean on a cultural level? How did it shape you know, questions around masculinity to the point that we still have similar discussions about certain bodies being more valued than others in the gay male community? I mean, what inspired this book? Well, you know, of course, was that first article I'd ever written about the Peacock Revolution. I'm like, well, if, if straight men are identifying through this fat, you know, ostentatious clothing, what are gay men doing? And then I was like, oh, they're wearing work boots and construction wear and, and you know, they're the sort of on the waterfront Marlon Brando aesthetic. And I'm like, oh, there's this sort of ruggedness, this almost working class masculinity that's being evoked. And I thought this is really interesting, right? Pronounced musculature and all this fun stuff that's shaping images of masculinity. So I wanted to see what the other half was doing, but then I began to work through it more and realized that these conversations mirrored broader conversations around the politics of sexual liberation. And we still see this today where people say, you can't tell me what I like. I like what I like, right? And you know, people would say extremely offensive terms in terms of exclusion. So they might say something like, you know, I don't know blacks, no fats, no femmes. That was a common thing you'd see in classified ads. Very offensive, very, very offensive, you know, and I apologize to the listeners, but you would also then see uh, when that started becoming increasingly scrutinized, right? And they said like, you know, at the end of the day, don't be a, a jerk, <laughs> just say what you want, don't say what you don't want. But then we see the politics of whiteness get bound up again, because they would say, I'm a white, able-bodied, macho, muscular man, looking for the same. And it is that politics of sameness that reiterates the desirability of the white muscular body. And some people say, well, you know, maybe they were just looking for the same. Well, yeah, but then they're also saying nobody else need, need apply. Um, and another way you would see in like classified ads or articles in which they would say something like, oh, you know, blacks and Asians welcome too. And I thought that was really interesting because to me then that says like, oh, they require the affirmation of the original writer to say, oh, you're welcome, by the way, to apply to hook up with me or whatever. And I just thought this politics, but we're still seeing that today. We still see it in the community today. And we'd be lying if we didn't, because anybody can open up a smartphone and download one of those apps, any of those social you know, networking apps for the uh, gay male community and see a similar politics being evoked. Um, and so in many ways, after my own experiences or reading, for example, uh, an article in Toronto Magazine, the author will remain anonymous, but reading a particular article, and I nod to this in my book, about the pride body, all about that pride body, about having to work out twice a day and go on a religious diet and go to Tom Ford and get flip-flops and get a Versace bathing suit for the cabana party in Toronto. I'm thinking, this, like, at first I was like, is this sarcasm? This has to be sarcasm. This can't be real. And then you read it and, you, and I'm like, oh no, they mean it. And then you see what they look like and that they're all their friends. And I'm like, they, they're all clones. Like they're all identical. And this of course sparked immense backlash because it uh, helped create the, um, the body pride movement in which love the body you're in. But there's this obsession with this particular body still. And so that's just fueled my desire to then speak truth to this power, if you will, because this still has a lot of power in the gay male community. There's a, you know, gay men are six times more likely, I believe the latest statistic came out was six times more likely than their straight counterparts to have an eating disorder 
because of things like body dysmorphia. This perpetuates that. But what I wanted to show was that this is not new. This has been going on 70 since the formulation, the formative years of a gay liber liberationist culture that, you know, you have gay liberationists who are seeking to celebrate all bodies. So I don't want to say the editorial collective of the body politic by any means perpetuated one type of body, but advertisements in the paper, other people writing about it, even in some of their own illustrations that they, they published alongside their articles, perpetuated the, the notion that there was a very desirable type of body. And it was white, macho, muscular, able-bodied, and so on. What were the repercussions for others who did not fit this norm? That's what I was interested to know. I didn't really care as much about macho as much as I cared about what it meant to not be macho, you know? And we see similar politics around effeminacy and whatnot, um, you know, and, and failure of gender come into play. And so that's, that's essentially my book in a nutshell is exploring those mediations of masculinity and what they, they mean. And then my second book to go off, and this is one that is truly, um, has enmeshed me fully into disability studies, is I'm looking at queer trauma, not groundbreaking, I know, queer trauma is not, not new by any means, but the, the, the aspect I take, and I have to say this is a co-authored book with a good friend of mine, Celeste Orr, and what we've come to find is that there is an anticipation of violence that contributes to queer trauma. So saying something like it gets better, it's a common misnomer, it's a common phrase used within the queer community about, you know, it, it will get better, right? It, it's going to be okay. But what that implies for a lot of people is it going to get rough. In order for it to get better, it's gotta be bad. So whether that's bad now or that you can expect, especially when you disclose your sexuality or your gender identity, um, it's going to be pretty shitty, but it will get better. So I'm approaching it from almost a pre-traumatic stress disorder, like a, a, what happens as a form of pre-trauma and then wrestle with the politics of this ableism, of this in some ways we have ugly laws 2.0 within the queer community because we don't want to envision bodies that fail, bodies that don't matter. I mean, we still wrestle with the politics of desirability. So Celeste and I were thinking about the ways in which this continues to reverberate in the contemporary queer community. But as a historian, I'm always keeping in mind that there are historical linkages, that this is not, it, this does not exist in a vacuum. It is actually from a long, rich history about the ways in which uh, bodies that fail or are perceived as disabled or just do not fit a norm or mold are ostracized or regulated, right? I mean, I could tell you the countless times in Ottawa I've heard that it's a conservative city, right? It's a government town. It's, it's like, you know, um, it's our capital. And there's a lot of talk about as a conservative city, if somebody's more flamboyant or has purple hair or whatever, um, that they're gonna have a harder time dating in the city um, as a gay man, because, you know, it's a conservative city and people want that very mask for mask crap. And they want that legible conservative traditional type of masculinity. And I'm thinking about this and I'm saying, okay, you don't necessarily have to put someone else down 
to enact this type of trauma. I mean, this trauma can be also enacted by the fact that you're even acknowledging that you're excusing that type of policing because it's a conservative city, right? That, that, that all it says to people is like, stay in your nice little neat box. And if you transgress it, there are consequences. Like you are no longer a desirable man. If you butch up, everybody's going to love you. But I see that as extremely, I see that as a violent act. I see that as another form of violence, um, right? And I'm taking from Eli Claire when I talk about this as horizontal violence, right? And so um, I'm thinking about the ways in which uh, the queer community enacts forms of violence against itself and within members in it. So I'm not, I don't know, maybe I'm the black sheep of the queer community in some ways because I want to talk about the violence that's going on within it. That's so interesting. The way you're talking about this anticipatory trauma within the community, yes, because of anticipated trauma from outside the community, right? It's this, yeah, a really, really vicious sort of situation. Um, and also really understandable knowing the history, right? Of why people feel the need to protect their communities in this way. Yeah, I'm really glad you're doing this work, Nick. It's really important. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I, it just, it is. It's so wrapped up in, as you said, like it's, it's about protecting the community in some ways. It's about making sure that, I think for some gay men that they're still seen as normal, that they can fit in. Like they're still mainstream, they're still men. Like, like um, and I can speak primarily because of my research on gay masculine and gay men, but I think just queers as a whole, like there's a certain homo-nationalism that's wrapped up to say like, we're good, we're desirable queers. We're not gonna rock the boat too much. You know, we'll ask for things like gay marriage, but we're like, you know, we still got, we still perform our gender in legible ways, traditional ways. Then you have queers who don't and they find themselves on the periphery. And I see this even among my students. So I can't say that like, I'm not, this isn't some deep dive into post-structuralism in which I'm looking for shadows or specters that don't exist. I see this among my students in which I teach a whole class called queer activism. Mm -hmm. And the amount of cis students who take for granted the privileges that performing a, a very traditional legible type of gender provides them with compared to, to those, those that don't, especially those who don't in visible ways, makes me think of the ways in which we read bodies. And that's where, again, disability studies really helps because it's shaped the way in which we've boxed bodies in. We understand and deconstruct bodies and give meaning to certain aspects of the body. So it's one thing to see a body and some, see someone sitting in a chair, but then see that same person then move themselves into a wheelchair and the entire meaning of their body fundamentally shifts in that moment. Um, for better or for worse. But it's the way in which, right, and Irving Goffman would say that's a sign vehicle in some way, right? It's an indication of someone's identity beyond their own gesticulations and voice and mannerisms and so on. So I see this as something we oscillate in and out of, just as I see like coming out, right? Um, people think when you come out, the world knows you're gay. Well, no, <laughs> the people you came out to know you're gay or you know, non-conforming or whatever your gender identity may be, but the world doesn't and we go back and forth, right? We oscillate based on where we are. If I'm at a gay bar, I'm gonna be much different than if I'm at a sports game perhaps. And I think the same thing can also be read for certain disabilities that you read them differently based on the space they're present, right? And so I think that's something that I'm always 
cognizant of because I think about who's welcome in certain queer spaces and who isn't. And I think that's a form of violence as well as that inclusivity and that exclusivity. So again, this is just, I'm seeing as like, it's, you know, they call it internalized homophobia. I think it's also partly, it, it is internalized ableism. Absolutely. And just thinking about the ways that ableism and homophobia um, borrow each other's language is the way one of the signifiers of able-bodiedness is the performance of normative gender. <laughs> so there's always that relationship at its basis. And oh my gosh, I'm just so excited about these projects. They're so phenomenal. And especially the way that you're thinking about anticipatory violence yeah. as kind of a, a form of trauma in, in itself. Um, the fact that so many queer people anticipate violence, not only from outside of their community, from, but from within it. Yes, uh, and I'm, I, well, I was gonna say, I'm thinking about feminism of the time, right? 1980s, 1990s feminists thought about, you know, women anticipating violence. Right. And, and so I'm thinking about it in, in, in that respect as well, is this anticipation of violence. Um, from a feminist standpoint of, you know, what do queers do when they anticipate violence, walking alone at night or walking down that dark alley and that, but I think in some ways they don't expect it first and foremost from their own community, but then when you get in it and you experience it, then you realize, oh, we're not as loving and embracing and all about the rainbow as people think we are. And that's not to demonize anybody, is to say that we're humans and we bleed like everyone too. And there's nothing about being a member of the queer community that makes you any more or any less ableist than being in mainstream society or any more or any less conformist or homo-nationalist, right? I mean, it's in Canada, at least, it's, it's sort of like a, a shut up, get your $10 queer loony, celebrate 50 years of decriminalization and move on. And that's, you know, and a good friend of mine, Tom Hooper is doing some incredible work on speaking truth to that power by saying, you know, the government's co-opted pride to pr promote a certain liberalist agenda. But within the queer community, it just, it, it saddens me. And that's why I do the work I do because I think there's so much room for improvement. There's so much need to hear voices which have gone unheard for too long. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think everything that you're saying, and this really speaks to the importance of your work, the having the capacity or the willingness to critique violence within your own community, I think is such a demonstration of love, um, like a commitment to just improving the ways that like within a community, uh, we relate to one another, um, working through the ways that we've internalized um, our own oppression in various ways and enacted them on other bodies, uh, like creating stratification within communities to do that work of self-surveillance. And I mean, you've brought up Goffman a couple of times, just like thinking about the complexities of stigma management and like border policing within a community, there's so much there. Um, and your work is just so vitally important. Um, thank you so much for, for sharing thank you. projects with us. <laughs> Yes, um, and, and uh, it's, it's truly been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, so I have one more question um, and you can kind of take this wherever you want. Um, 
I noticed that you're the director of research for the Canadian Center for Gender and Sexual Diversity's uh, proposed LGBTQ2S plus museum in Ottawa, Ontario. And I'd love to kind of pick your brain, hear more about this work and how it speaks to your life as a researcher, as an educator, and are there any other exciting projects for you on the horizon other than these phenomenal book projects, which I'm sure are keeping you very busy? <laughs> yes, um, thank you. So the Canadian Center for Gender and Sexual Diversity, which is, um, I like to use the acronym for the sake of brevity, the CCGSD. Um, so they are a national organization headquartered in Ottawa. And at the time, a few years ago, they had started sourcing some money to build what is the first queer museum in the world, um, a, a national queer museum. That of course, since COVID has constantly been changed and is in flux. Um, but one of the things that I've remained, so I, I still direct a lot of student research there. It might not necessarily go for the museum per se, but one of the things I've learned in my capacity as this um, research director is the, the importance and the criticality of having students see firsthand what um, broader implications their research has, that it can exist well beyond the institution, the halls of academia. So I've mentioned before that I teach a queer activism class at the University of Windsor and it is my, it is truly like my pride and joy. Like this class is everything I embody as an academic. And one of the things I have students do, and it's not just about writing essays. So I have them write op-eds and I have them do things like that actually demonstrate a type of queer knowledge and make it accessible for the public. But I also have them go out into the communities and they engage in what I call experiential learning. And these are practicum-based learning in which they go out and they can make gender neutral washrooms at a restaurant. They can go and, and give a training lecture at their workplace about the importance of using gender neutral pronouns. Um, I think just make the world a better place. And so this is a fundamental core to my classes, but I have them do research in relation with relationship to the CCGSD because the CCGSD is also housed, um, it also, uh, provides a lot of support for gay straight alliances across the country. So I find that it's a critical relationship um, that I have directing student research on any given topic, whether that is on the trans experience, it's looking at two-spiritedness in indigenous communities. They're looking at, they wanna talk about black trans lives and black trans liberation, or they wanna look at the fundamental need for greater um, greater space for Black Lives Matter in the queer communities. Like there's some really excellent topics and projects. And for me then to have that then also come back and speak volumes in the classroom and shape how I teach is monumental. So I'll give you one great example. And this is just, you know, again, another direction that disability studies has pushed me in a way. Um, so in my interviews for this project, for this book on trauma, as well as me looking at disability activism, I've interviewed a few, uh, a number of activists, particularly those in Toronto, and one by the name of Leslie Lee Cam. 
and they are just wickedly brilliant, and they call themselves a world majority dyke. And Leslie Lee Camp has an acquired disability, but has spoken at great lengths about the work they do with um, seniors and older queers, um, and the need for greater LGBTQ2S plus training in senior homes and long-term care facilities. And so I teach an entire lecture on ageism in the queer community. That's something we still don't wrestle with a lot of. We talk about, you know, pride as this great monumental space, but let's look at who's present in pride, who's seen as welcome at prides. And let me tell you, it's not queer seniors, right? They're not envisioned as being exactly the face of pride. We always see it as youth. And, you know, again, that also stems into the It Gets Better campaign of saying, Let's get the youth in here so that they can feel accepted and have a sense of community. But for many queer seniors, they go back into the long-term care facilities um, once, you know, if, if need be, and they're forced back into the closet. There's a lot rampant homophobia, transphobia, and so on um, within the queer community, or sorry, within um, long-term care facilities that affect the queer community. And I think that's something that's not being discussed. And the work of like Leslie Lee Cam is extremely vital in that uh, way. So what I've done is take my interviews and take the research I've acquired from this and actually teach students the same types of um, practices and processes that contribute to this type of ageism and homophobia, this queer phobia, if you will and looking at those intersections. And so I've actually had three or four students this term, I just finished this term uh, from January onward, go to long-term care facilities in my hometown and actually say like, here are some manuals. We're gonna start addressing like the type of homophobia that exists, not just among other uh, um, long-term care residents, but among the staff who don't know how to engage, right? Uh, queer people in long-term care facilities often are separated because there's worry of relationships forming between people if they have a, a joint room. Um, you know, they are mocked or ridiculed. They may face violence in different ways. And again, this goes into how I'm thinking about queer trauma and violence. We can't just think about young people or people who are newly out or don't know how to navigate. We have to think about people who are already out, our forefathers and mothers and for, you know, parents, if you will, um, who fought so hard for our rights, and then we put them into our care facility, and they're almost they're they're revoked of those same privileges and rights they fought so hard for outside of it. And yeah, so that's that's sort of my impetus and where I see my research and my education intersect. Right, is is acquiring these skills, but then passing them on and making sure students can do the same type of social justice activism, speak truth to that power that I try to do so in my books, in my, my own work. Nick, this is such powerful work and it's, it's meaningful to me in a lot of ways. I mean, I love the way that you're thinking about extending your reach into public education and scholarship and focusing on this intergenerational transmission of knowledge that I think unfortunately is often lost in queer communities over time, partially because of ageism um, and not continuing to include queer elders in our movements. And I, I just wanna talk with you at a later date about the work that you're doing with Leslie in mm. uh, uh, this long-term care facility. I'm working on an article right now on 
um, also looking at HIV AIDS, um, but I'm, I'm really interested in um, examining the AIDS epidemic as a site of accelerated aging in queer communities. And I'm, and I'm thinking a lot about ageism, ageism within queer community. I like wrote my undergrad thesis on growing old as a queer time. Um, Amazing. And it's like really curious about like what are the unexamined parameters of a queer life course and like the ways that queerness is so naturalized in terms of its proper place within youth to the point that there's a tacit assumption that people age out of queerness. And yes. that correlates with violence and institutionalization, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. When I, I interviewed Joanne Doucette, who was one of the founding members of Disabled Women's Network, okay, and they formed in, I believe, 1984, they were formed, uh, if not officially, 1985. Joanne Doucette, so I'm talking about it, she's been around for a while, we were, I was like, what was it like? She was one of the 17 founders of the, the organization. She said, when you're in a wheelchair, people only see you for your wheelchair, just as if you were older, you're invisible to younger people. And I thought that was extremely powerful because she spoke about being relegated as what she saw was invisible, being um, being um, almost unrecognizable to many queer folks as a lesbian because of her age. And I think this has to do with the fact that the queer community is founded on ideally, well, I mean, it was, especially in the 70s and 80s, on one core principle, same-sex desire right, that there was a sexual what it, difference, you know, and of course it's now come to be including of gender identity and, and asexuality and intersexuality and, and all these wonderful things that the umbrella, you know, now we have alphabet soup as they say, right, and um, I think it's wonderful, but uh, in the 70s and 80s, it was, all, it was primarily around same-sex desire. So you have a culture being formed around sexuality so what does that mean for bodies who cannot participate in that type of sexuality, right? Whether they're disabled, they have HIV AIDS, or they're too old, right? They're no longer sex. That means they can't participate in a culture that is grounded on sexuality. So I think that is, the, and I mean, mainstream society, I would argue, is just as much sexualized and, and grounded on sexuality. Uh, I think they've done a better job hiding it um, and sort of covering it up with all this moral aptitude. But uh, it, it, queer sexuality, I think, because it was so explicitly vocal about, you know, it's our desire that has bound us together as gay men, as lesbians, and then, of course, inclusive of the trans community and so on um, as, as it grew. But sexuality, since it's this linchpin, I think those who are seen as being unable to perform a type of sexuality um, or um, are no longer sexualized, then feel like they can't participate in that culture. And I think that's just part of why, again, as you said, we see this aging out and aging is a very queer thing. And I love that. And I just think, yeah, anytime you wanna talk about ageism and how this can shape, even with HIV AIDS, like the idea of accelerated aging, that is fascinating. I will definitely be in touch with you. I feel like we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> Excellent, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nick. This was such a phenomenal conversation and I know our listeners will be so thrilled to hear all about your work. Thank you very much for having me. I'm truly honored and humbled that DSQ um, offered me the opportunity to speak on such a great platform. 
about my work and to hopefully help others navigate their work um, in a similar capacity. Thanks to everyone out there for listening or reading the transcript. Please join us again next time. Bye-bye.